what is Bitcoin? In like the the abstract, uh, it's it's a it's a money system built for the internet, peer to peer electronic cash system. So what that means is rather than going to like a centralized server, a la like a Spotify or whatever, who are downloading directly from a peer, tons of advantages. Um, especially when it begins to get into sort of the nitty gritty of like what money is and how money works and how the control systems that are sort of set up around money, how having a centralized, uh, you know, entity or sort of gatekeepers that are allowed to sort of censor and monitor transactions, um, you can kind of see why the peer-to-peer -peer thing, why we use, you know, why cash is so great for certain businesses and certain things and why like credit cards and checks and things are better for other ones but the peer-to-peerness is uh is sort of the essential thing of bitcoin and of course bitcoin uh really wouldn't be possible without the internet um <clears throat> that is not to say that it's something that you know couldn't handle uh internet outages or there are not like really creative ways to use the bitcoin network outside of traditional internet like providers service providers as long as you're inputting the right you know, hashes and the right, you know, sized bits of information into the network, you can interact with the Bitcoin network, uh, you know, however you want. Um, there are obviously things you can't do, um, but as long as it's your property, sort of, that you are in control over on the network, you can kind of do whatever you want with it. It's, it, it's open source. There's, there's no one that's going to say, no, 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 you can't make that transaction or no, 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 you can't pay that person. No blacklisting. There's no, you know, freezing or, or holding funds. There's none of that shit. What is Bitcoin? Peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash open source protocol that uses the internet um, and the, the the protocols of the internet to connect, you know, a bunch of servers that are running coin nodes that are essentially running the blockchain. What they're doing, what a blockchain is. It's just like a chain of bits all strung together. It basically goes through and it goes back all the way back to the very beginning, to the first block, which is called the Genesis block. And it, it validates and verifies every single transaction. Make sure that there's no erroneous transactions or no double spends. Why would we want to do all this bullshit and have all these computers strung up? And how is this like even money at all? What the fuck is money? Uh, it seems kind of stupid. But what is money? I mean, it is a really weird abstract thing that we think of so literally and like with integers and stuff, but really it's just a social construct. Um, there have been so many different types of currencies that have existed, all different types of forms, um, uh, things that are based on natural resources like you know, shells, of course, like oil or gold, gems, precious stones, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, and then kind of some more abstract stuff. And there's some kind of cool history of African trading that was done uh, sort of kind of more, not so much based on a weight system or like a scarcity system, but, but kind of more on the, the creation behind like making the good. So kind of more like artistic commodities, right? There's so many different things that we can view and say have, have value. We can say a, a Counter-Strike Go skin value we can say you know the, the, the weed plant has value or whatever right so money is just the social construct that we use to express variance and volatility in our own 
uh, economic situation versus someone else. That's a complicated way to say, you know, I want to I want to give you five dollars worth of something because you have given me an equal amount, the credit and debit exchange, right? Money is just the language that we use to express differences of value and the volatility of the value. So it, it's really funny, actually, if you look at humanity, the, the first known writings that we have um, that we've ever found uh, were actually ledgers. They were it was a number system that was derived, uh, you know, sort of around the Pearl Crescent area and kind of demarcations for uh, for agriculture and for trade and for like livestock trade. So the first systems that we actually even created, we created language, you could even say, as a form to express how we were, uh, you know, exchanging value and exchanging work. We love to try to reject our biology all the time, you know, and like to think that we're not these kind of capitalist creatures because like we, we, we believe in things bigger and that's true and of course I believe all those things also it's like well not really like there's a lot of pretty just basic like the way our brains work and, and, and the way that we see the world and in the base that we see it in this mathematical world math is a language too um, I, I, I don't I don't think it's surprising at all actually even though it's kind of a crazy fact that the first language systems we de we derived were to to demarcate money, I, I think it actually makes a ton of sense based on, you know, not, not much has changed, right? But then that leads into, so, okay, well, well how did we get to where we are now? And uh, what is our current system of money? How does it work? So uh, if you take out a dollar bill, there's like that like famous phrase for all debts to be paid, private, personal, whatever basically have done is we've replaced this ledger system of I owe you three oxen and you owe me, you know, four eggs of rice or whatever. We've replaced ledger with tender. What that is, is the dollar is a piece of tender, right? It's just a, it's a demarcation. It's a tokenized representation debt. So it's a way to pay debt. So it's, they created tender and bills as a way to sort of, you know, to create a, a bubble. There's sort of this weird fact about how cre credit and debit work, where you need both of them. They're a yin and the yang thing. You can't create credit without debt, and vice versa. I think that's a really common misunderstood thing um, that's kind of hard to grasp. But basically, and we print money, and we and we print dollar bills. We are also creating debt on the other side in the form of treasury bonds that we sell to uh you know to foreign come to foreign uh governments or or whatever uh you know big entities um and and and, and we basically say we're going to give you this amount of yield after you know say it's a 10-year bond um you're going to buy these bonds now and and, and they're going to pay out 10 percent in 10 years a guarantee 10% is humongous, you know, if it, 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 the way compounding interest stuff works, um, those percentages start racking up super crazy. So the way our system is sort of built up right now, is we print tons and tons of bills, and we keep printing these bonds, and we keep selling them. We sell them to Japan, we sell them to China, we sell them to, you know, to uh, oligarchs, basically, you know. With, with the promise and the sort of assumption that um, the way that we're going to handle the money supply 
at a, a seven uh, that a seven right that a seven percent uh, yield is going to be worth something, and that the inflation will never pass the point at which those bonds would stop would stop being you know worth holding on to. So right now we're getting into this this issue where we have we have turned our our you know our principal basically the incoming money that we make on taxes. Um, you know, if the U.S. was a company, across this Rubicon of of this point where we are no longer our, our our interest gained on the debt that we owe because of these you know these deals we've made with you know, selling these bonds, our uh, the principal per year is now more than the amount of money that comes in to our government. So we're actually having as we're basically a zombie company right now. So what we did in 2008 when we had this. You know this global, res- the Great Recession, or I think is what it's called. That was that was uh, it's sort of blamed on all of these crappy uh, subprime mortgages being packaged up creatively, and then just being this huge countrywide default <clears throat> that destroyed the housing market and 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 caused a huge bank run on all of these banks. And instead of what we should have done, which was to bank, which was to bail out the debtors, so like the people like us or our parents or our generations of parents or whatever that owned all the all these houses that just lost all their you know their money and they lost their mortgages what we should have done is bail those people out but what we did was instead we bailed out the centralized entities that that were the creditors but we're in this sort of weird situation where the thing we can kind of do right now is print more money because the creditors need it we need it or sorry the debtors need it us the people we need it to live and to survive what it's really doing is creating this sort of feedback loop of, of debt uh, not being paid off by the credit we're producing and we're taking on more debt than the credit we could ever possibly produce. So right now we have, have, we have a, 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 a potential serious issue um, where we have like a hundred you know, trillion dollars. I mean, there's so much money out there when you look at bond markets and derivative markets and all of this, you know, stuff that they don't tell you about, when you, when you when you look into those spaces and just see how much wealth has really accumulated at the top, um, this money printing has created a scenario where the rich are getting richer and they are happy about the situation that's occurring with printing more money and with inflating. You would think that they would that they would want to preserve the amount of money that they have, the wealth that they have in the dollar, but really. The way that it actually works in practice is they don't give a fuck the, the, the purchasing power of the dollar because they're so close to where this basically the spigot comes out, where the money comes out. By the time they get it and they can spend it and buy assets, now we're not necessarily necessarily seeing a ton of inflation in the consumer price index, which is like milk or gas or you know computers or whatever. Like you know we're starting to see it, but it's not crazy yet. But where you do see it. You see it in these these uh, you know you could you could say it's the Cantillian asset uh, uh, index, which is the Cantillian effect is the concept that I'm sort of explaining that those closest to the money printer are going to get the most advantages of the money that they get because if they get a hundred million dollars day one, the, the negative effects of the devaluation of printing all of this money and creating a bigger supply so that the, the demand is less, so it has less purchasing power, 
they get all the advantages and none of the disadvantages. But by the time they spend that money, by the time Bank of America got those, you know, got money back to the people that lost their homes and stuff, that money was worth way less than it was when it was initially printed. And Bank of America made all this. They were basically gambling with our money. Then they fucked up. Then he got bailed out. Then they got to use all of that money before we did and buy assets and do stuff and buy up all of the homes that they just kicked everybody out of, right? They drove up real estate asset prices. We're, like real estate is not going is is you know small businesses are dying and and bars are dying and restaurants are getting fucked up and it's a mess. Housing prices aren't going down. And it's so hard to buy land right now. I mean, it's just so crazy. And 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 then you see stuff like what's happening in Bitcoin right now, where seeing this hyper Bitcoinization, these huge moves, because um, it's sort of a canary in the coal mine for like. You know this this inflation that is coming, where uh, people that hold these treasury bonds and hold all of these other assets that the dollar has been, you know, sort of inflating into, there's going to be a big rush. Why would you hold a 10-year treasury bond, a U.S. government treasury bond, if you know that the purchasing power that like we're going to have to print 30 trillion dollars in the next four years to get out of this mess? It's like why would you why would you hold the dollar if you know that it's going to be devalued? you know, 100% or 99%. Um, it's okay when you're, you know, average inflation, you know, they aim to be about 2 to 3% a year. That's what the U.S. Treasury sets. And they still say that they're doing that, even though 75% of all the U.S. dollars in existence have been printed since 2009. Oh, so that's insanely untrue and just not, that's, that doesn't add up, right? Like, that's not 2% a year. 75% is... So they're 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 doing all this stuff to sort of end like inflation isn't happening until the last minute and 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 then I think it's going to happen pretty fast. So that kind of gets into that sort of basic parameters of an economy is it it's supply and demand. The obvious a market is just a buyer and a seller. That's it. You can have a market for anything. Pokemon cards, like now and later candies, fucking lighters, cigarettes, whatever the fuck, right? So, that's true whether it's you know housing prices whether it's uh you know wages whether it's whatever there's always you know it has to be an agreed upon thing between a seller and a buyer whatever you're buying whatever you're selling that's how the market works so when you get into stuff like well okay well what type of commodities are there what type of money is there um you can kind of break it down uh sort of like in genres of of commodity and so what we have now as as a system us dollar is it's no longer backed by anything outside of that you can use it to pay your taxes in the u.s it is literally the only value that it has uh, intrinsically you could say that that's not an intrinsic value but but it is i mean everyone needs anyone that's based in america has to pay their taxes in u.s dollars so so that is a use case you can't deny that and it's a very important one but at the same time I mean, that could change. I mean, the U.S. could decide to accept Bitcoin or accept another thing or whatever, or U.S. dollar coin or whatever. And then that whole rule will change. And then that one reason that makes this, you know, a couple cent piece of cloth and ink, you know, that's worth a hundred bucks, theoretically, you know, it would it would instantly be you know, worth you know, its intrinsic value, which is basically zero. It's paper money. So they call that fiat. That phrase is, is, is Latin for like it is is because it is, basically.
when you're calling something a fiat currency, you're, you're referring to the euro, you're referring to, you know, the peso, U.S. dollar. Uh, there is not any currency right now in the world that is used by an international, or rather a national entity, um, that is anything but a fiat currency. It isn't. There's no gold standard. We have a complete um, uh, peg for value system, and we are, are now ex and we and we did that in 1971. Nixon uh, took us off the gold standard. Yeah, and and that was a really crazy thing, and um, and it was done overnight. It was an executive order. Now, obviously, there was tons of people behind it, and they talked about it, and yada yada. I mean, there were a ton of people that weren't prepared for it, and it fucked over a lot of national entities. It pissed off a lot of people. Um, there was no warning to massive, you know, uh, debtors uh, that owed that owed ton of treasury bonds or owed tons of dollars. You know, they didn't know, you know, what was happening. So it was a pretty skeezy thing, and it, and it definitely messed up the international market quite a bit. But it was a direct reaction to um, to sort of the crisis of the Cuban, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Cold War and sort of this post-World War II, um, you know, uncertainty of like, are we going to go back into this other thing? Is, is what's going on with Vietnam? Um, but there was a thing called the London Gold Pool uh, and it basically got evaporated and everybody like took their took their uh, their money out and that was Charles de Gaulle did that with France sort of famously of getting his money out of the US and refusing to sort of play by the rules and uh, uh, <clears throat> so so we we completely went to the fiat in 1971 and, and and basically the whole world followed because they they don't they didn't really have a choice we were we're sort of the reserve trade currency of the world so if your neighbor decides that they're no longer going to be limited by you know reality and have any sort of backing to this money that they're making, if your neighbor decides they're not gonna do it, like you, you literally have to. I mean, you have to depeg to compete, otherwise they're gonna just roast you. Um, so that's what happened. We had, a, we had a massive global shift into this sort of fiat world, which we are in now, and now we are very much so experiencing the effects of it. If you look at the money supply charts of countries around the world, uh, basically every Federal Reserve has lowered interest rates to zero, which means that when they are printing money, they're, they're not free money that they're printing and they're not putting any any amount, they're not charging any amount to, to get that money. So if you raise interest rates, it makes it, it, makes it expensive to, to print money. Um, so we're not there. Right now we are just, everything is depegged. There are even talks about countries going and there have been some countries that have experimented with negative interest rates where they actually charge you to keep your money in that currency so that, that kind of stuff has really crazy I mean you can't even save you know it, it's basically it's like just take out as many loans as the fuck as you want and just go crazy which is what governments are doing it's really scary because it's not done with sort of an education that's being expressed to you know, people that hold dollars it's kind of not fair and so that gets into this, who are, who's controlling these parameters? What are the parameters outside of supply and demand? What are the parameters that control supply and demand, right? Um, so sort of these three major parameters, in my opinion, um, uh, when, when dealing with like what makes a financial system and what makes money. And there's the concept of trust, the concept of centralization, 
and then the concept of censorship. Um, and these are sort of going to be the three biggest words of the next 10 years, because the decisions that are made now, as we move into this sort of deflationary world from this inflationary world, are going to set the rules until the next time someone decides to do a Nixon and break off from, you know, sort of a peg thing. So <clears throat> when I mean like trust, you know, that's, you're, you're looking for uh, a good a good money system is not one that you have to rely on someone else to trust them to carry out, you know, your transaction, right? Pretty simple. I have to trust when I put my money into a bank that they're going to fucking not spend it or steal it or that they're going to um, actually transact and send going to send you 20 bucks i have to trust that they're gonna that they're gonna let me use my money at that time and that they're gonna send it on their payment rails and get it to you and then not just decide to you know change their minds a week later let's switch it you know it's like but there's a lot of trust involved in uh in money i mean that's really this it is the trust of this social construct that is money so trust is one of the most important kind of words in in financial systems um and then obviously a big part of trust is well the centralization of it so you know you can have trust you could have a, a foolproof trusted system that's decentralized which you know is what we're building with bitcoin right so far any system that we've developed had to trust the centralized figure swift or ach or whatever this or venmo or paypal um you're putting your trust and your money in this person to not be off and to and then you're paying them a fee um, to do it, usually. Then there's the last parameter, which is censorship, which is absolutely like is what everyone should be talking about. Is is if we're accepting that money as a social contract and an expression of language, then uh, the 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 idea that someone could just censor a transaction, block it, is a parameter that you should look into when when deciding. You know, right, right now we have an opportunity to sort of change our money. So it's like when we're look, looking for new systems, this is something we need to look for. Um, there's a lot of distrust, and there has been a lot of reason for distrust. Um, we 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 got screwed as a country in in 2008, and and that was really bad. And the way that they fixed it was by bailing out predatorial debtors and not helping us. And now we're kind of back in the same situation where that sort of same same concepts are happening. So so. We have reason to be distrustful. And also, if it's more so if there's an opportunity for a system that exists that is just functionally better, I mean, why would you ever operate with the old world if, if this new one is, is just better in every way? So that sort of gets into, well, what is Bitcoin and why Bitcoin? And what the fuck does Bitcoin have to do with all this crap that we're talking about? So that's sort of the main basic, uh, you know, overview of, of, of what is money. And I think the core thing to, to get out of it is uh, the difference between a currency and an asset or a commodity. So a currency is a, the U.S. dollar is a currency. The only thing that it is worth is it's worth its utility that you can spend it. It's not worth anything else. Um, there's no smelting it down and making electrical components with it. Um, it's just for the, the thing that you, that this money language that we're all agreeing to, you can use it to pay your taxes and pay your and pay your debts off. That's that's what a currency is. But an asset is something that has other values, that has other things that 
you know, a dollar bill can't be a remittance payment. It, a dollar bill can't fly to Mexico and, um, you know, distribute wealth to your family in another country. Um, there are payment rails that can do that. There are systems that can do that. You can translate that dollar into something that can do that. Your dollar can't do that on its own. A currency is just for that, that you know, paying off debts in that, you know, one-to-one, one-to-one way. Things like gold, things like land, um, things like cryptocurrency, they have other pieces of value that are intrinsic. What Bitcoin does and what its intrinsic value is, it is a, it is a trustless, decentralized, censorship-resistant, uh, open-source network that is a remittance protocol and a, and, and a transactional currency. And also, it is a verifiably scarce digital asset that, because of its digital verifiable scarcity, that cannot be changed. It it it, it holds the the new the newfound asset value of, of of a store of value, which is the predominant thing that we think of when we think of gold. Gold is not expensive because it's used in computers. Uh, there there is a there is a truth to the beauty of gold and the shininess and whatever. But 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 basically, it's this it's the store of value concept that is what gives it about a seven trillion dollar market cap. It's about seven trillion dollars that people have stored in gold across the across the globe. At, uh, that's its main its main function. And so a lot of a lot of people do say, you know, well, gold, you know, it's shiny and blue, and you can hold it. Like coins, nothing. Well, there are there are other properties that are you know more abstract than just being able to bite into something to know if it's real or not. So there are things behind Bitcoin that that give it all of these qualities that make it the hardest. Um, best form of money that's ever been made, um, and so because of that, there's 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 a, a natural physical thing that's going to happen in the market that is uh, is sort of inevitable, and it's not as maybe as intentional or as as like diabolical as it is just sort of the physics of how good money works, and 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 right now we're seeing a massive inflow institutionally from banks and from very 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 big holders. Um, moving into the Bitcoin space because of the store of value that's derived from the network effects of such a robust and crazy new piece of technology that is Bitcoin uh, and that is blockchain. So we'll get into what Bitcoin is. So what are Bitcoins? Well, the, I think the best way to look at it is you're not you don't own Bitcoins, like you don't, if you have a hardware wallet or a little USB or, or a wallet on your phone or on your computer or whatever, you, you, you don't you don't have the Bitcoins on your computer or on your wallet. What you have is basically a title or like a deed to real estate on the, the blockchain, which is really just a big, giant, distributed ledger. So we're right back to that first, what is money? what is the first language systems we developed. So it's just a big fucking ledger. So what that means is I'm not holding three bitcoins like like three gold bullions and then I can hand them out and whatever and blah blah blah. What 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 basically I'm reserving my space on this public giant decentralized network that can't be shut down or censored or you know all that stuff. So I'm basically reserving three you know, three integers worth of space 
on that real estate so that I can say if I want to send you something, I could send you .001 of one of whatever I hold and then basically I'm just giving you an IOU that's based on, okay, well now you hold a little bit of, of this real estate that I own. So it's not so much this like coin concept or like, it's not so much a literal thing. It's actually, it's a, it's basically like this big giant Excel sheet or this Google Sheets and everybody can write in minus 100 or whatever, which is which exactly how Bank of America works, right? You know, we're, we're already operating with digital currency. The majority of all dollars in existence aren't actually printed and exist. They're just bits on a computer. Um, but the major difference between the Bitcoin network and say, you know, the SWIFT network, which was the interbanking, if, if Deutsche Bank wants to send money to Bank of America, they have their own system. But it is, it's just a ledger. And all it is is saying at the end of the day, okay, you're plus 100, you're minus 100, you're plus 250, you're whatever. But at the end of the day, it's just this simplification of this giant distributed ledger that shows you your balance that you have in your account. But that balance is only created from the credits and debits that have occurred in the ledger and on the network. So in order to jump on and use the network, you have to, you know, create a create a credit and debit buyer-seller situation, and you have to buy a piece of that, you know, the value of what is this giant distributed ledger that's going across this blockchain. So all blockchain is, is just a fancy way to say that they figured out, they solved a computer science problem that allows bits to be verifiably not double spent. So the double spend is an issue with all digital currencies or like, you know, you know, RuneScape gold or something, right? Or War of the Warcraft gold or whatever. The double spend means that I can't like give you a dollar and then give, you know, uh, you know, my neighbor that same dollar. Double spend is just preventing you from double spending this one thing that you have in the ledger. Like, because you don't necessarily know, <clears throat> you know, if we just have Excel sheets that are just sort of willy-nilly, you don't actually really know if I have that money that I'm, that I'm, you know, giving you an IOU from if you can't see verifiably the whole ledger chain and you don't know where I'm coming from. I can write you a bum check and run away, right? It wouldn't be good. So the distributed ledger is the blockchain. And the way that it works is there's a, there's a time release mechanism, sort of the heartbeat of the blockchain the Bitcoin network. <clears throat> every 10 minutes, on average, <clears throat> a new block is produced. Every 10 minutes, boom, block. Every 10 minutes, boom, another new block. All the blocks are of data that, is, that contains all of the transactions that were presented at that time. So if I want to make a transaction on the Bitcoin network, in the same way that if I wanted to give you a check or an IOU, I'm just going to hold up, you know, like I'm hailing a cab to the Bitcoin network where all the miners are. I'm gonna hold up a little IOU and say, you know, hey, I, I wanna I wanna spend a hundred dollars and and I'll and I'll give you a dollar if you take this IOU and you and you and you write it in the ledger. I'm basically bribing coin network miners. I'm bribing them with the network fee, with a miner fee, a small one, a couple bucks or you know, upwards of like a billion dollars of movement, which is a crazy crazy value that's never occurred. If you want to move billions of dollars, everyone in the world knows you're doing it. It's going to cost you millions of dollars to do it, basically. Um, the Bitcoin network, it's like dollar. It's the same amount of money as if you wanted to spend, you know, send, you know, a much smaller amount. So it's a whole value proposition in itself. But basically, 
the concept of you are projecting and broadcasting to the network saying, I want to make this IOU or this swap. I want to credit this or deb debit this to my ledger space on the Bitcoin network. So every 10 minutes, whichever miner solves a, a mathematical problem, um, it's basically all of these miners, there's millions of them putting out millions and millions of computations per second. I mean, it's absolutely insane that I, I think it's like a, to the it's like 19 zeros or something. It's fucking insane. Uh, it's like more than like the grains of like glass or sorry, the grains of sand on the beaches of the US. It's like there's that or, or in the world. There's like that many transactions per second happening. I mean, it's it's such an astronomically huge network. And, and so when people say Bitcoin isn't blocked by, backed by anything, they don't actually know what's happening. It's backed by so much computation power. And it, we've never seen an, an, an accrued amount of, of, uh, of, of this amount of hash rate. And that's sort of that's what hash rate is, if you've ever heard that phrase. Hash rate is how many miners are trying to solve this, you know, Sudoku, this, this, this computer science program. And if they solve the mathematical problem and they get the exact hash that fits in, that completes the previous block, um, they, they get a they get a reward from the Bitcoin protocol, from the program itself, it's called a block reward. So they get bribed from the protocol, but then also they collect all of the fees from people like me trying to send transactions out. You know, so, you know, they get a they get a small small minor fee from for picking up transactions. And if you need your transaction to go, like immediately, you can put up a higher fee and everyone will take it because everyone wants to get you know your, uh, you know your high fee. So you can get you can get confirmations in the next block instantly if you pay more, right? So there's so many game theory things here in, in play with Bitcoin that it can kind of be hard to to see the full picture. But sort of break down each piece. There's incentives for the miners to secure the network by outputting these these hashes to try to find the next block. If they get the key and they guess the next block. They get paid, they get a lot of money. The network is game theories to be more and more secure every single time. That, you know, anyone turns on a computer that wants to mine Bitcoin, the network gets more secure. Anytime someone comes into the space and buys a new warehouse of Bitcoin miners, the network gets more secure. Bitcoin network has to adjust to that. You know, there's tons of people, you know, you don't, you don't want someone to just turn on, you know, double the Bitcoin network and just be able to take over and they win every block and then they can just start writing in any fucking transactions that they want. Um, if, if they win a ton and a ton and a ton of blocks in a row, they could theoretically try to sneak in some fake ledgers and stuff because they're verifying their own blocks, right? Eventually that would get caught because it would take so much astronomical luck to get that many blocks in a row. Um, it's basically impossible. It, it, it is statistically impossible. I mean, you, you, the amount of money that you would need to up, to upkeep 51% attack, which is what it's called when you have more than 51% of the hash rate, and you could try to fuck with the network. The game theory behind it, again, again, smooshes that idea. Because it would be much more beneficial for you to just input that money the network legitimately and, and be able to not risk losing all that money. Because once a block decides that, oh, shit, we realized they were putting in fake transactions, then your whole blockchain, all of those blocks that you mine that you put in all this money to, it all gets orphaned off and gets determined by the protocol to be fake right away. So, so much game theory 
in, in Bitcoin mining to secure this network. And one of the main things that it's based on is this block reward. Same way gold has value and gold's value goes up. Gold's value goes up, that means that the demand is going up. So when the demand goes up, uh, it means that your supply is worth more. So you can therefore spend more money to get harder to reach gold because you can get more for it. As gold goes up, gold miner stocks go up and people start digging deeper because gold is worth more. So it's, it's profitable to mine gold. Uh, Bitcoin does the same thing. It does this really weird thing called the difficulty adjustment. So within the Bitcoin protocol, you turn on a ton of a ton of miners and you're just ripping and you're getting tons and tons of blocks and 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 instead of it being on average 10 minutes in between blocks if you're solving the computation so fast and you're getting them in like three minutes four minutes five minutes what's going to happen is the network is going to look at the timestamps of when these blocks are getting solved and they're going to make an adjustment every 2112 blocks there's a thing called the difficulty adjustment and the network takes a scope and looks at itself and it says holy shit, we were supposed to have done that in two weeks and it took us like four days. So it's going to make a mathematical adjustment that's based on the hash rate and how many, you know, uh, uh, computations are being solved in, you know, when, if, we're, if we're averaging it out to 10 minutes, it will make an adjustment and make the problem harder to solve as the network looks and it sees how many people are mining and how the network's running. It will make it harder and make it more expensive to mine and make it more difficult, which will do stuff to the supply and demand. When when that gets increased, miners have to sell their coins faster because they need to pay for electricity for mining. That's really gets into the crux of that concept right there. Of, well then what's putting what's putting value into the Bitcoin network to begin with, right? If if we're if we're saying that you need credit to make debt or you need debt to make credit, then what the fuck started that yin and yang system on the Bitcoin network? It's the electric the electrical costs of mining Bitcoin. I have to pay, you know, my electrical company to run that computation and to make all of those hashes per second to try to compete and win a block. Oh, my cost isn't just zero. I don't get to just jump on the network and just have fun. I have to pay money to participate in the network for the opportunity to be rewarded a block, to mine. If I do win and I do get a block, then I, I now have an income that is I can use to offset that debt that I created. I have to sell it for a certain amount of money because I put in a certain amount of money of electricity. I'm not going to just sell that Bitcoin for a dollar if I spent $5,000 to mine it. Okay? Um, so there, there is innately a game theory there that, that, that again triggers on this global market scale of now private citizens can sort of engage in global energy network. Um, that's never been a possibility for anyone other than nation states to be able to participate in. Humongous change to the status quo because there are people that you know live near hydropower or 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 even uh, solar is a, is a huge one. You know, there's so much. It's not that renewables aren't great; they are. It's just there's only certain times where they work, and if the demand isn't there, you know, when when the sun goes down and everyone wants to heat their homes in the winter, it's like, well, the sun doesn't really help us that much then. But during the day, we had all this excess energy because there's tons and tons of shit going on. So you can actually use runoff energy to participate in the Bitcoin network and you can turn like run runoff natural gas or, or hydropower that wouldn't be used in these low demand 
moments on the energy grid and you can create a token that is like energy arbitrage which is just it's such a crazy it, it's such a bizarre you know thing to think that you know when i'm actually trading a bitcoin what i'm actually trading is the debt that someone incurred to mine that bitcoin extrapolated over time so as more people join the network and it gets more and more expensive to mine bitcoin bitcoin will get more expensive because the people that are mining it are going to sell it for more in order to pay the same amount of money that they're paying into the network to mine the bitcoin so Again, that triggers another part of the game theory a bit more. The supply is...